Well, good morning, fellowship. As you make your way in, uh, would you all stand with us as we direct our attention and our worship to the God who is worthy and he is with us this morning. So join us in singing. Each time I doubt your goodness, you show me you are with us. Your presence makes the difference. I've seen it every time. What a good God.
this morning. We're excited to be able to celebrate and continue in our worship uh, through celebrating a baptism. Uh, Myla Bashaw is getting baptized. So if you can uh, point your attention over here, you guys can take a seat and we'll celebrate with the family. Hey, guys, think about it. Hey, Dad, you want to come over here? So this is my precious nine-year-old daughter, Myla, and you want to swim. This is, (laughs) she she is the oldest of six siblings. As you can see, they are all here, and they love and support her. Um, Her father and I have had the honor of watching the Holy Spirit work in Myla since she was very young. Um, Starting at the age of four, we saw Myla's deep empathy toward others, and we saw the Spirit working to make her aware of sin. We watched her comfort hurting and traumatized children as she rocked them and she sang to them and she said, you are safe and Jesus loves you. She shared the the story of God with them. Uh, We've heard her share the story of Jesus with her teachers and her friends and her siblings. We've seen the the ways that Myla battles against what her flesh wants to do and what God has taught her to do. We have sat with her at night as she tearfully prayed for God to make her more like Jesus and less like herself, as she felt the weight of her sin. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in Myla, moving her to a deeper understanding of who God is and a desperate need for a savior. About a year ago, Myla asked to be baptized. I said, well, why do you wanna be baptized? And she said, I wanna obey God. So we have studied what this means to be a follower of Jesus, and Myla understands that her salvation cannot be earned, and that she was chosen by God. Myla understands that the consequence for her sin is death, and that Jesus took that consequence for her. So today, Myla is professing her faith in Jesus through baptism. Good morning, church. Thank you for being here to celebrate. Myla, have you confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Yes. Has God chosen you to be part of his family? Do you trust Christ's sacrifice in your place? Yes. It's with great joy that we baptize you this morning and get to share this beautiful picture with all of the people here of what Jesus does for everyone who believes in him by faith. Milo, we baptize you in the name of the Father who chose you before the creation of the world and of the Son who died on the cross for you and of the Holy Spirit who convicted you of sin and brought you to repentance and submission by the, by the word of God. Thank you, Josh and Catherine. Uh, Fellowship's family ministry mission statement is to help families own the spiritual development of the next generation. And so from very little to uh, all the way through high school, that's what we want to do. We want to partner with parents to own the spiritual development of the next generation. So so encouraging to see that with the Bashaws. Um, good morning, my name's Abel, this is my wife Sarah, and as of two weeks ago, we are both on staff, so yeah, yeah. Yay. Um, 
Sarah got hired to work on Fellowship's care and counseling team on our, on our staff there as a, as a counselor. So we're, we're really grateful, really excited about that. And I am on our community team, which helps our body belong, grow, serve, and multiply our faith. And one of the things we love to do is to help new people connect. And so if you are new, we would love to meet with you. We'd love to connect with you. You can do that one of two ways. After the service, stop at the community booth. We'd love to visit with you, get to know you. Or you can text hashtag new to the number on the screen, and we'll reach out after that. Okay, we're going to take a show of hands. This is no shame in this game. But <laughs> show of hands, who subscribes to the weekly Bentonville Fellowship emails that go out on Friday mornings. If you do not subscribe to that, I highly encourage you to do so because it is a great place to get information. You can get information about student ministries, women's gatherings, men's gatherings, really whatever is happening here at Fellowship Bentonville, that is your place to get information. You can use that as a prayer prompt to pray through those different things that are happening at Fellowship, to get plugged in, um, but it's a great way to get connected. Excellent, excellent. Um, do you do you read the emails? I I do read the emails. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily read them on Fridays when they come out, but by Sunday usually I have them read. Gold star, <laughs> gold you. star. Thank I read them too. It really is honestly the best way to stay in the loop on what's happening at Fellowship Benville. Come over here. They told us for the live stream we have to be in the middle. There oh, you go. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, and I totally lost my. Train of thought. They're good. like, man, that married couple's got some issues. Look how far <laughs> apart. What's going on? They're in a fight this morning. I know they are. Um, <laughs> grief share. That's grief right. Share. That's right. Mm -hmm. So one of the things in the uh, email this week is grief share. And I don't know if you have experienced the loss of a loved one um, recently or, or even in the last handful of years. Grief share is a wonderful ministry that has helped countless people really across the U.S. It's not just a local ministry. This is, this is a ministry that has helped people process and deal with the loss of a loved one. And um, let's, let's watch a, a video of a testimony of a couple people who have benefited from Grief Share. I was fortunate to serve in law enforcement for many years. And through that experience, I saw a lot of death. I saw a lot of heartache. As I consider what life could have been like without Grief Share, and I think my family would be quick to recognize that I became calloused. As I began to process the death of my best friend who was also in law enforcement, and the death of my brother who died unexpectedly because of COVID, and then a coach who was a mentor, and then lastly, mama. There was a part of my heart that didn't want to receive help. And what a blessing to have a counselor that said, would you consider what it's like to potentially go to grief share? I was the man that was on the map. Those that were in class with me, they were the ones that were on the map. And we arrived, but those that were caring were our leaders, the, the food angels, those that had gone through the class before us and who were burdened that they had a heart to want to give back. But as I sat at the end of 13 weeks, I realized that the Lord allowed me to be carried by a group of people that loved God and wanted to give back to others. And now it's my turn to finish my own journey of grief so that one day I hope I can carry someone else. So I searched out Grief Share because I have recently lost my husband and I felt like I needed something more to direct me in a right direction. Grief Share is an opportunity to not only learn 
from the Lord, from other people, but to meet and feel that love from those people. That I did not know other people could love you that you don't know. Um, so I, I felt a lot of love and a lot of prayer coming from those people that help you each day. And I can honestly say going through Grief Share for the first time, I actually felt a prayer lift anxiety from my shoulders. One evening going in, I said a prayer that I learned in Grief Share to ask me to make a step forward. And I went to bed that night, my anxiety was gone and I felt it. And I wanted to shout it from the rooftops how well and amazing that it felt, that I felt that prayer lift that anxiety from me. And so if it gives one person that one moment, I think it's worth it. I really appreciate Maria and Joe's words in that video, and I just think it's so true. Joe talked about, um, Joe's a pretty special person in our, our family's life, and he I'm sure he has touched many of y'all as well, but he talked about how grief kind of calloused his heart, kind of hardened his heart, and that's what it does. When we walk through grief, when we walk through painful situations that we don't really know how to navigate, sometimes our response to that is just to harden our heart, deaden our heart, don't feel it. Um, and that is not the way we were created to live. Um, and Grief Share is a great place to start that journey of kind of opening up your heart, healing your heart again. Um, if Grief Share doesn't seem applicable to you, we also have the Counseling Care Ministry. That is a phenomenal place. We have about 20 counselors um, on staff there at the Counseling Care um, Ministry that would love to serve you and bless you. Mm -hmm. Let me pray for us as we get the service underway. Lord, we love you. And we acknowledge that you are the potter and we are the clay. We're all the work of your hands. And we entrust ourselves fresh to you today. And say, Lord, you're our, we are yours. And we ask you to just speak your truth into our hearts, into our minds today. As we worship, as we sing, as we hear your word taught, as we be together as the body of Christ. And we give this time day to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, will you stand with us? Psalm 100 verse 4 instructs us to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And wherever you may come from, whether it's a place of grief or sorrow or victory and joy, Know that this is the place that you can come to acknowledge him and lay those things before him. So let's turn our attention this morning in thanksgiving and praise to the king who loves each of us unconditionally. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your Castles crumble and breath is fleeting. Upon this rock I will stand. Yeah. Upon this rock I will stand. Glory, glory.
love for us to focus just on the words of that bridge that we sang. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. In every victory, Jesus is better. Than any comfort, Jesus is better. And more than all riches. So when we say each of those words, sorrow, victory, comfort, riches, what comes to your mind? So we'll sing this again, and I just ask you to reflect. Let those things come to mind. Are you in sorrow? Is there grief? Is there loss that you bring in? Is there victory and confidence and celebration? Is there a pursuit or grasping of comforts? I need this. Or is there riches that we place our hope in? Then all those things as they come to your mind, let's lay them before Jesus. And whether it's in faith or whether we truly believe, we say Jesus is better. And let's declare that together. So I ask you, you can go ahead and take a seat and reflect for a minute. And then I'll ask us again, after we reflect, we start singing Jesus is better to stand again and we can declare in faith. So reflect for a minute. stand again with us and with those things in mind whatever came to your mind will you declare this with me Jesus is better Jesus is better sing that again Jesus is better Jesus is better. Sing again. Jesus is better. Jesus is to know. 
Would you take a seat and pray with me? Jesus, that is the cry of our hearts, that no matter where we are, that we would set you before us, that we would look to you as our salvation and our hope, and that in doing that and setting our eyes and casting our gaze and setting our attention and our focus amidst questions and doubt and sorrow and hurt and victory and riches, no matter what it is, Lord, that we would know you there and we would invite you there to know you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Yeah. 
not only our heads but our hearts before you we acknowledge that you are our best good that you are who and what we need most but Lord right now we need most as your church your empowering presence we believe you've come to share yourself to give yourself to us in your life more than our lives Pray that, Father, for the empowering presence in our early childhood classes this morning. Pray that for our elementary, for our special needs and disability ministry. Pray that as our high school students meets next door. But Lord, for certain, we pray that here. Would you speak to your people? Would you give us a word, a sense of your presence? Because that's what your church needs most. Lord Jesus, that's what we need most. We ask you for this for our friends down the street at Grace Point, at Catalyst, at New Heights Bentonville. We are your body. Your word, and Jesus, our head. And we do want to say again, we love you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. So good to see you all. I know it's uh, summertime, and like uh, everyone else, your family, our family, sometimes we're a little more in and out. It is so good when we gather together, though. Elisa and I and our kids and grandkids uh, just got back last night from two weeks at at family camp, and um, it was awesome. I woke up this morning. You know what? I had two thoughts. Went to bed last night thinking it's so good to sleep in your own home after you've been gone. And then secondly, it's so good to come back and worship with your church home. It just is right to be together. Uh, family camp is a blast, and I am getting older. And my body feels it more every single year. I just keep thinking it pushes me to play harder than I would ever choose to play, probably more in two weeks than two years combined. And my usual thought, particularly when I'm doing things with our teenage sons and, and son and his friends, is don't be that dad. Don't be that dad that gets caught on film by the camp videographer. I just, Mark, don't become an adjective. Don't get stuck on a high ropes course and they go, don't pull a shotsman, you know, where they turn your noun into an adjective. It's never a good thing when your name becomes an adjective. Nancy doesn't want to be called negative Nancy. Nervous Nelly, Peeping Tom, Dapper Don, Debbie Downer, Boring Bob, right, Plain Jane. But there is one first name that has become an adjective that is more famous than any other, and it's who? Yeah. No, his name is not Thomas. His first name is Doubting. Middle name, Thomas. Hey, listen, how would you like your most public failure to become your only claim to fame? And that's not fair to Thomas because the Bible is full of famous doubters. In fact, the story of the Bible begins with a pair of famous doubters. Their names, Adam and Eve, followed up by the first people of the family of God, Abraham and Sarah, followed up by Moses, and David and Elijah and John the Baptist, even Jesus' biological family, 
Doubters, all doubters. No one turned them into an adjective. Why Thomas? In fact, all the disciples ran away, not just Thomas. Even after Jesus was raised from the dead, fear and doubt were kind of the hallmark of their early Christian discipleship. In fact, we pick up the story in John chapter 20, and we find that Mary Magdalene is actually the one who goes to the tomb, not expecting Jesus to be alive, sees the resurrected Jesus, runs back to Peter and to John and says, I've seen the Lord. They leave the room they're hiding in, run to the tomb to see if it could be true, peer in and believe, but the text says, and were confused and did not understand these things. So they go back to their locked room. And we pick up the story in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, that's the Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. So let's borrow a term from 2020. These men were sheltering in place. The door was locked to keep someone out, and the someone was the very people who had just killed uh, their master. For the last 72 hours, these men huddle in fear. The dominating discussion point was simply this. How do we get out of Jerusalem alive? How do we make the 60-mile journey back to Galilee to try to reboot our broken lives that we left three years ago? Hey, folks, fear will make you hunker down and just try to escape another day alive. And that's where these disciples are. The rest of verse 19, though, has a stark contrast of hope. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. In the midst of the fear, of being locked in a room, figuring how just to make it through another day, Jesus appears. Now listen, he didn't appear in a calming way. He didn't knock and announce his presence. He just appeared. So they were afraid, and now they are, yeah, probably terrified and anxious at the same time. And yet Jesus, in the middle of that fear, speaks a word. We have the English phrase, peace be with you, on the screen. This is what they would have heard in their Jewish ears. Shalom. Shalom with an exclamation point. A sense of peace or well-being or wholeness that can only come from God. He is saying, shalom, peace be on you, peace be to you, in a way that your anxiety may be stilled, that your fears may be calmed, that your soul well, that it would be well with your soul. And isn't that what we just read that they needed most? In the middle of their fear and anxiety, he speaks, shalom. How are they going to experience peace in the middle of fear? Because enemies are still in the city, and the door is still locked. Better yet, how do we experience Peace in the middle of anxiety and fear. You have to go back to the day before Jesus' arrest. It would be about three and a half days before this event. 
where Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Jesus promises peace in the middle of fear. He doesn't tell us when we're afraid, um, cheer up. That's not his message. Hey, would you put on a happy face? I, 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 like, I like happy friends, not anxious friends. And he doesn't tell his disciples to toughen up. Hey, buck up. There's nothing to be afraid of. No, Jesus, he has walked the real world and has actually experienced the worst this world can dole out. And his message is, the world is scary. And so you need a peace that goes beyond what the world can manufacture and put on your plate. You need a peace that is otherworldly. He calls it my peace I give you. I'll take a calm heart in the middle of fear over smooth sailing any and every day. Because if you've lived in this town for at least a week, you know the weather can change, right? And if you're banking on peace coming from calm and steady weather, well, life's going to be a difficult journey. But the peace of Christ is as constant as he is. And don't forget where John chapter 20 comes to us. That's his always ever-present resurrected appearance. He is constant because he is alive. And now he go back, go back to John 20 and look at the next verse. John chapter 20, verse 20. When Jesus had said this, remember, only one word, shalom. He showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I find it more than just a little ironic that the reference to this verse of the disciples finally getting clear sight into who Jesus is comes at John 20, 20. And what we see here is that there's an identifying feature of Jesus that sets him apart from anyone else. He showed them his scars. His resurrected scars are his most identifying mark. Scars are the only souvenir Jesus chooses to take from his earthly ministry. It was the late Adrian Rogers who observed that there will be only one man-made thing in heaven, the scars of Jesus Christ, forever reminding us of two things Forever reminding us that, number one, sin has been paid for fully and finally. And that death has been conquered fully and finally. So the very two things that make us most anxious and afraid are symbolically in those resurrected scars. And Jesus says, my peace I give you. The disciples' reaction is immediate. The text tells us they were overjoyed. Now, that's really interesting because the previous verse we just read, verse 19 said they're filled with fear. Now in verse 20, it says they are filled with joy. 
What changed between 19 and 20? The empowering presence of Jesus Christ, speaking a word of peace into their anxious hearts. We see clearly that fear turns to joy for one reason and one reason only. It's because Jesus is present and in their presence. The resurrected Jesus met the disciples where they need it most. And guess what? The resurrected Jesus meets you where you need it most. He actually hears the anxious thoughts that hum through your mind, the one that you're trying to self-talk your way out of. He, he knows the fear you feel. And he steps into that place, and he offers himself. Listen, we live in an age that on the surface just looks angry. Have you ever walked among an angrier people at any other time in your life? Anger, we, we're told, is a secondary emotion. It's what we feel on the surface when there's something deeper going on. And the deeper going on is usually hurt or, or, or anxiety or, or, or a sense of fear. Yeah, I think we walk in an anxious world. When people are manifesting their anxiety through anger towards one another. We are a people who need the peace of God that comes from a deeper and better and truer place. We need peace because we struggle with fear. And the presence of Jesus, well, he is central to both our experience of peace and our experience of joy. We know that peace and joy do not come from when the stuff of life gets, well, that it plays out just like we want. You know, when the circumstances turn out right or when there's an absence of chaos or hardship or when we can secure our health or our futures or our children's health or their future. No, that's not where peace comes from. That's actually where a sense of anxious control comes from. Just trying to make it all work out. And Jesus steps in and says, Shalom. You need my peace. And when we lock into his peace, well, we'll experience what the first century disciples experienced. We'll experience his joy. Because his peace always comes with his joy. But there's one individual who's missing from the room. His name, Thomas. We pick him up in verse 24. Now, Thomas called Didymus, that means the twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. I wonder if they actually greeted him with that the moment he walked through the door. You know, step in through the door. Ha! Ah! Would they greet him with that news? We've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds from the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. I don't know where Thomas was. Maybe he was out on a recon mission helping to pick a safe escape route out of Jerusalem. We don't know. We just know he's not there when Jesus appeared. And his friends try to share their happy joy with Thomas. And he is not having it. Why? Is it because Thomas is more stubborn and negative than the rest? That's how we picture him. 
There's no reason to picture him that way. The text doesn't tell us that. But don't forget, where did peace and joy come from? The presence of Jesus. This is a disciple who has not experienced the presence of Jesus. Of course, he doesn't have the peace and the joy of Jesus. See, I think his words of him saying, unless I can touch, put my hand in those scars, I think those words are more than just a scientist who's saying, give me more empirical evidence. I need more data before I make my decision. No, I don't think that's what we're hearing here. I think we're hearing the words of a friend who has been left out. A friend who's saying, you saw Jesus? I need to encounter him too. I need to touch him. The problem is he takes his need, and out of his need he makes a troubling vow. Be careful what you promise at the height of your anxiety and fear. The vows you make can hold you hostage. The vow he makes is I, not cannot believe, that's not what the text says, does it? I will not believe. And so significant is that vow that history just changed his name. This man became an adjective overnight. His name is no longer Thomas. That's his middle name. His first name is now Doubting. And I think that's not fair to Thomas. And I especially think that's unfair to Doubt. Because notice what is absence from, from Thomas's entire response. Folks, he asked no questions. No questions. The only thing he has is conclusions. I will never believe, he says. That's not the heart of doubt. That's the heart of skepticism. Doubt actually produces questions. Questions move us to a place to explore. Skepticism, skepticism only produces a conclusion a conclusion that there is nothing left to explore, and we withdraw from the engagement. See, questions can actually be an indication of trust. You would not bring someone a question unless you believed there was an answer that could possibly be there. And so it is here with Thomas. Yeah, He's moved to skepticism, a conclusion that there's no worthwhile answer to explore. Listen, we all know doubt, don't we? We've all experienced it. We know that doubt can be an enemy of our faith, meaning it can start to chip away and erode our faith. But folks, doubt is not the opposite of faith. In fact, doubt, doubt can actually be uh, something that uh, fuels a deeper faith rather than extinguishes a deeper faith. Uh, my first... Uh, New Testament professor, decades and decades ago, later became a friend and a colleague in my life, Gary Stanley. And Dr. Stanley was, wrote a book called After the Passion. And in it, Gary says, so what is it about doubt that can make it good or bad? Doubt can quickly get in the way of faith. When doubt is allowed to rule, faith is clogged up. But faith seems to grow out of doubt. Certainty does not make room for faith. Doubt does. Remember, doubt produces questions. 
questions drive you to explore. So maybe what I need is flexible doubt that can yield to faith and trust after being awakened. What does Thomas do with his doubts? He makes his conclusion. He shuts down. And then just like a loving God, Jesus leaves him in those doubts for eight days, locked in a room with happy, believing friends. That's torture. We know that misery loves company. They don't love happy optimists. And I wonder, as you picture him for the next eight days, Jesus, by the way, could have come the next morning, but he leaves them trapped in the cell of that doubt, listening to his friends who were probably trying to convince him. No, Thomas, really, we saw the Lord and he'll have none of it. I wonder if he sulks in the corner. I wonder if his real name is not Pouting Thomas rather than Doubting Thomas. I don't know. I just know how I was when I was in Thomas's shoes about 40 years ago. A 19-year-old freshman, not trusting Jesus' leadership in my Christian life, and as a result, trying to gut it out on my own strength, which is nothing more than a recipe for massive anxiety and insecurity as a Christian. And then my best friend introduces me to these happy, convinced, joy-filled Christians. And I started spending more time with them. <laughs> you know what my conclusion was? Get this. Something must be wrong with them. Because if they were as grown up as me, they would be as insecure and as anxious and filled with questions that shut down my faith too. It didn't dawn on me that maybe something was wrong with me. Yeah. So it is for Thomas until Jesus lovingly appears. Verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. For the other ten disciples, this is deja vu. For Thomas, this is good news, fresh news. He's experiencing the empowering presence of Jesus. Jesus does exactly what he did the first time. He even enters the room the same way. He even speaks the exact same word. Why? For Thomas. Jesus came for Thomas. Jesus came for the sad, sulking, doubting, skeptical Thomas. Your doubt may keep you from Jesus, but it cannot keep Jesus from you. Your eyes may be clouded with doubts, but Jesus sees you very, very clearly. And he comes to speak a word with his empowering presence. He knows the doubt can shut you down. And he comes to speak shalom, wholeness to you. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband, Jim, leaving her alone to uh, raise her 10-month-old daughter. Her husband, Jim, was a missionary who was martyred 
um, speared by the very ones he came to, to serve. And Elizabeth Elliot in her, her book, uh, Through Gates of Splendor, her little autobiography of that time, describes it as a time that plunged her into a cycle of pain and grief and questions. The only question she said is, what would she do with her questions? And she says, and through Gates of Splendor, waiting on God requires the willingness to bear uncertainty. Did you hear that? Waiting on God doesn't necessarily take away all your uncertainties, but it requires a willingness to hold those uncertainties before God. She says it requires the willingness to carry within oneself the unanswered questions. You're not the only one with unanswered questions. We all have them. It requires the ability to lift the heart to God about it whenever it intrudes upon one's thoughts. Again, we all carry unanswered questions. The only question on the table now is simply this. Where will you carry them? Will you carry them only to a place of self? Because that's anxiety producing. Or will you carry them to the Savior? Does your doubt drive you to God for answers or away from God in unbelief? And I notice that Jesus gives Thomas a command here. His command was simply this. Do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Ironically, he tells Thomas up front, feel free to put your finger into the scars. Hey, when Jesus invites Thomas to touch his scars, do you know what he's inviting him to do? Come a little bit closer. Because you have to be close to someone to be able to touch them. And that's Thomas's invitation with his doubts. Come close to me in them. And then as you come close, he gives a command, a negative command first. Do not continue in your unbelief. A positive command after that. But believe. Ironically, Thomas does not touch Jesus. He simply makes a confession in the next line, verse 28. Thomas replied to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And that is a declaration of both faith and of following, which is mind-blowing. Because three verses earlier, Thomas was a sworn skeptic. Remember, he doesn't say, I cannot believe. He says, I will not believe. And now here, he's a devoted follower of Jesus. What caused the sworn skeptic to become a devoted follower of Jesus? Jesus' appearance, his empowering presence. Unbelief turns to conviction because Jesus is simply present. The resurrected, present Jesus is that critical to our faith and our following as well. It's central. Because listen, we all struggle with doubt at times. The question now is simply, what will you do with your doubts? And Jesus invites us to do the same thing over and over again every time a doubt comes to our mind. Look back at me, look back at me, look back at me. Experience my empowering presence. 
bring the unanswered question to him and rest those questions on the answers he's already given you. I, too, wrestle with doubts in the Christian life. I don't know why God allows certain things to happen the way they do happen or doesn't stop certain events from happening. I cannot answer that. I can't answer that in loss. I can't answer that in grief. I can't answer that in a broken world. So I've got these lingering questions. What do I do with them? Do I rest my faith on the lingering questions? Or do I rest the lingering questions on the answers that God has already given me? What answers has he given me? Jesus Christ came and lived as God in the flesh. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to to conquer death. Jesus Christ continues his ongoing work in this world through his Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, and even through the church of God. And Jesus Christ will come again to make all things fully and finally right. Those are five settled answers I have. I'm going to take every question after that questions on top of the settled answers, and not the settled answers on top of my shaky temporary questions. That's what moves us from doubt to a transforming faith. This is a picture of the tomb of St. Thomas. It's on a hill near the airport in Chennai, India. It supposedly marks Thomas's grave. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is that history tells us that Thomas carried the gospel as far as India. We do know his confession of faith propelled that faithful journey. Remember, he started with my Lord and my God. And what produced out of that kind of transforming faith were churches that can trace their roots all the way back to Thomas coming to India to tell them of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. See, I don't think Thomas is a poster child for doubt at all. I think he's the poster child for transforming faith. And I would like to be known to that kind of adjective too. How about you? A transforming faith in his life caused him to to walk with Jesus until his last breath. Church history tells us that he too was martyred for his faith. He was speared, pierced in the side, just like his Lord Jesus Christ. And Thomas shows us what transforming faith is really like. Transforming faith has a content to accept. There is a substance, we believe. But it also has a commitment to act. There is a someone to follow. Our faith has a content that Jesus Christ lived and died, rose again, and is coming again. But our faith also has a commitment. It means that we give our life to Jesus Christ as the leader of our life. He is our God and our Lord. And as a new leader of our life, he is the person we follow, clinging to the substance of the faith he gave us. And when the substance and the someone come together and we hold to both, it's a transforming faith. 
The next line is Jesus speaking to Thomas. After he confesses, my Lord and my God, Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's Jesus speaking about now? Yeah, you and me. And he says that when we have a transforming faith in him, it brings blessing. And by the way, blessing, and I, blessing in the Hebrew sense of the word, not blessing in the southern sense of the word. In the southern sense of the word, blessing can mean either kind of a nicety or not a compliment, like bless your heart. That's not a good thing. No, when Jesus speaks blessing, they hear it through their Hebrew ears, they know it's a word that means a kind of happiness and flourishing and wholeness in life that comes from God. That's what transforming faith brings us. Transforming faith, by the way, have you noticed as we've done 20 weeks in the Gospel of John, you've seen the word believe, 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 believe over and over again? You've seen it 80-something times. Because transforming faith or belief is the pipeline through which God pours his blessing, his empowering presence through. No wonder God loves us enough to let us walk through painful, difficult times in order to stretch that pipeline bigger. No wonder he continues to give us the word of God in order to strengthen that pipeline so that it will not break as it's being stretched. He loves us enough to increase the faith pipeline so that he can pour more of his blessing his shalom, his empowering presence through us. That's not just Thomas's story. Jesus says that's our story, which is why John closes the episode with Thomas with a commentary in verse 30. Now, Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, the 20 that we've walked through, these are recorded. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We have the words and the works and the ways of Jesus written for us, which is why we've been walking through those for 20 weeks so that the pipeline of transforming faith would be enlarged, and that as it's enlarged, we would experience more of his abundant life. That's not just the story for first century disciples, men and women. That's the story for 21st century disciples. So bring your questions, bring your doubts to Jesus. Come close enough to touch him. And then stay humble enough to listen to his words and let his empowering presence touch and change you. Tom Skinner was another who experienced transforming faith in Jesus Christ. Raised in Harlem as the product of a single home, single parent home. Rising up through the only way he could rise up through gangs in New York. He encountered Jesus Christ and became a prominent African-American pastor and evangelist. Listen to his words about his own doubts. 
I spent a long time. I spent a long time trying to come to grips with my doubts. When suddenly I realized I've got to come to grips with what I believe. I've since moved from the agony of questions that I still can't answer to the reality of answers that are inescapable. And it is a great relief. That's his way of saying, and it is shalom, the blessing. It's a transforming faith. Let me pray. Can I invite you to bring your doubts to Jesus even now in faith? If you have questions about why or what or if, bring those to him. But lean on the answers he's given you, first and foremost. Lord, as the Father in Mark chapter 9 said, we do believe, but help us in our unbelief. Help us trust what you've already said. Help us keep coming to you with the doubts that we have. Transform our faith into a life-giving faith experience the empowering presence of Jesus. It's in your name we pray.
broken but we have a savior who loves us and is able to save us and to lift us um, when we need him and we have so much to be grateful for as followers of Jesus we really do well uh, as we go this week I want to remind you we have a legacy gathering first one that will start this Wednesday and uh, so want to be part of Legacy, we invite you to be part of that. And we also, we want to be a body that is connected. We want to belong together and grow together, serve together. We want to multiply our faith together. Um, you can do that organizationally, like we talked about. Come and connect with us. We'll try to um, organizationally place you. Our, our favorite way for you to be connected is just relationally and organically. So a great way to do that is after service introduce yourself to the people you're sitting around, uh, see what they're doing for lunch, and uh, we invite you to get to know one another. So um, as we leave, introduce yourself to the people around you, and uh, let's be the church this week together. Pray. Have a great week.